Good evening, everyone, or good morning, wherever you are. Our uh, guest tonight, I know, is very familiar for most of you, um, and it's morning for him because he lives in Japan, but it's evening for me, so I have my tea here, so as um, to keep myself calm with all of the interesting information we're going to be discussing today. Um, as you know, James Corbett is going to be with us in a second. He's in the green room, the digital green room. I'm going to bring him in in a second. I just wanted to go through a couple orders of business. First off, if you're watching this video on YouTube, remember that it's possible it will get deleted. Uh, many of you know I had one of my videos removed last week, and it was subsequently put on, put back on after I appealed. But it was a great lesson that uh, YouTube is not is not the stable source of uh, free information. Um, I'm sure that doesn't come as a shock to many of you. So make sure you're subscribed to some of my other platforms. The links are in the description. And this will be if in the event it gets booted, it will be uploaded to those other platforms. So keep an eye on that. And somebody who knows a lot about getting booted from YouTube is uh, James Corbett, who's here, except for it says I can't. Oh, you you muted yourself on accident. James. I sure did. No, I, okay. or I always purpose. mute when I'm listening. Okay, okay, okay. All right. I figured at first I wasn't sure if we were going to the times right. And I'm like, if this guy who reports on all of these these really intense subjects cannot figure out Pacific Standard Time where he is, I'm you know what? I give up. And I was like, I'm sure he can. I'm sure he can. And you did. And then you unmuted yourself. It's all going to be just fine. Um, <laughs> I'm a professional. Don't worry. <laughs> I know. I know. So, um, yes. And we already got our first super chat from Bob Whitt Whittlefitch, whose birthday it is today. And he said this was the best birthday present he could get having you do a live stream. So huge fan. I know a lot of people on the stream are. Um, and he says, I hope your channel survives this. So we'll see because you recently I, had to. I, Allison, let me just say right up front. I apologize in advance for getting another strike on your channel because it <laughs> will probably happen. Uh, I, it is what it is. And I should know because I've already had one channel deleted. Yes. Well, you're not the first person I've had on the channel who's had a channel deleted. And as I was telling you before we went live, I consider you on my list of mainstream media's most wanted. And uh, and so I those are exactly the people I want to talk to are the people that the establishment tells you are dangerous or you shouldn't talk to. Um, because frankly, I, I want to know for myself and your voice and a lot of other voices that I've been exploring since I got out of television news are ones that, um, well, what did Chris Hayes, what did he call it? Uh, oh, I, conspiratorial quackery. Is that what he said about your Fed video? I actually have that. Uh, hang on, let me show everybody here because I, I I am dying to have you respond to some of this this stuff as well. Uh, here it is. Uh, my favorite example of how informationally toxic YouTube's algorithm is this: Imagine you're a high school freshman and got a school assignment about the Federal Reserve, and you happen to come across. But he doesn't say this. But he says you watch videos on YouTube all the time, so you go home and put Federal Reserve into the YouTube search bar. This is the first video that comes up, 1.6 million views, and it's yours. So. <laughs> Look, you got a shout out from Chris Hayes and he calls you conspiratorial quackery. So, of course, you're the guy I want on the channel because I, I love that kind of stuff. So tell me, uh, first off, James, if you don't mind, um, what happened on YouTube? Let, let's, let's start there. And then I want to go back into like, who is James Corbett and how you got into all of this stuff? But what recently happened to you on YouTube, which should not be shocking to any of us? Right. So in order to understand what happened recently, I guess we should back up for uh, at least a few years of context there, like the Chris <laughs> Hayes tweet, um, yes. where... If you go back a few years from, from today and you had typed Federal Reserve into YouTube, yes, the very first result would have been my Century of Enslavement, the History of the Federal Reserve documentary, which I released in 2014. And it is exactly what it says on the title there. It is a 90-minute feature-length documentary 
about the history of the Federal Reserve. And yes, I'm sure it will be labeled conspiratorial quackery by some like Chris Hayes, but actually the best piece of criticism that I ever received on that documentary was someone who said, but James, this is basically just taking a bunch of Federal Reserve documents and reading them. <laughs> I said, yes, yes, exactly <laughs> right. No, there's nothing conspiratorial about this. This is in their own papers and their own documents. But anyway, um, that, and I think that was exactly precisely the problem that Chris Hayes was pointing out. If you go to YouTube and you type Federal Reserve in, if you're an unsuspecting little uh, high school student doing a, a research project and you decide to look for information about the Federal Reserve on YouTube, you're going to find my documentary before you find the Federal Reserve's own channel or CNN or any of that kind of information. And that cannot abide. So Chris Hayes tweet tweeted about it. And lo and behold, wouldn't you know, the very next day, if you typed Federal Reserve into the YouTube search bar, it would not be the first search result or the second or the third. It would not be on the first page of results or the second or the third. You could scroll down as far as you like and you could not find my documentary except where it had been posted by other people on their channels. But my uh, my version of that was completely scrubbed from the search results. And it did come out uh, several months later from one of the uh, Google whistleblowers that yes, Federal Reserve, that search term had been entered on a blacklist in the YouTube internal search uh, algorithm uh, so that it would only return approved, you know, good results from mainstream sources. Um, so that has been the trend on YouTube for a number of years. I've been documenting this for at least, I think six years. I had a uh, 2015 video, I, I wanna say, about uh, the revolution will not be YouTubed where I was talking about these, exactly this uh, move towards censorship. So this is nothing at all new to me or nothing at all surprising. But I think we all understand that it is in the past year that the censorship has really ratcheted up to an insane degree. Um, after the dr dramatic deplatforming of uh, targets like uh, Alex Jones and other such targets that the general population could get behind, oh, that you know, we got to get those toxic voices off. I think once that precedent had been set, then it was just a case of finding an excuse to get rid of uh, independent voices like mine. And so obviously this past year has provided that excuse and it was specifically surrounding, I mean, I think every single one of my strikes that I received before my channel was finally removed was um, under the under the category of COVID misinformation or something along those lines. Uh, essentially YouTube says you cannot say anything that goes against uh, the uh, local health authorities and the or the World Health Organization guidelines on you know social distancing and whatever else. So that was at least the ostensible reason for all of the strikes that ultimately led to the removal of my channel. But I will note that the third strike, the third and final three strikes you're out, the the video that broke the camel's back, as it were, was not a video of me calling for some sort of armed insurrection or teaching people how to make a nuclear bomb or anything of the sort. It was a podcast about the philosophy of science. Yes, I, I spent an hour talking about the philosophy of science, um, reading lengthy passages uh, from, uh, uh, not Karl Popper, um, uh, the other, uh, Thomas Kuhn, uh, yes. the, the, the structure of scientific revolutions and things like this in the context of what's happening today. And apparently that, that is just thought crime in this day and age. So it gets you banned from YouTube as I was, or at least my main channel. I still have a backup channel that is still functioning for the time being, but it's just a matter of time before that gets removed too. So of course, like yourself, I always, always tell people do not follow me on YouTube, follow me anywhere else.
Yeah. Yeah. I look at it kind of like at this point, it's a storefront window. If it exists, fine. People can go window shopping there, but that's not my business. I don't, I won't look at it like this is where I want you to come into my business and, you know, check out my stuff. It's, I, it, it's, it's still got a huge audience. Um, I'm sure they don't put my videos in front of that many of them, but, but it's still got a big audience. I don't want to totally cut my nose off to spite my face necessarily. But in this particular case, like I self demonetize this video, I demonetize a lot partially because I'm kind of experimenting to see if you fly under the radar a little bit more, if they're not putting ads on it. Originally, I thought it was it was not going to help to demonetize because if they can't make money off of it, then they're not going to show it. But I actually, I did a whole month demonetize and I did better that month than I've done in a long time. So I can't really figure it out. I'm, I'm curious, did they tell you that that science says video was the one, that was the straw that broke the camel's back? Or did they just say, that that's just your final strike like that in other words is it everything leading up to it and that or was it that video was just too much right well they don't really provide you with much information at all all i know is that that was the third strike and thus it was automatic that the channel would be removed and there was okay. and they explained that in every one of the strike emails that i got the first strike the second strike the warning all of that um they said three strikes and your channel will be removed. So I, I have the sense it was simply automatic. Once they struck that video, it was removed. Um, but I still find it ironic that it was a podcast about the philosophy of science that got me removed from YouTube. Right. Right. And basically what you were saying, I was just listening to it, is walking people through essentially that we're, we're almost trained to think of science as an objective practice. Whereas what you were telling people is that there's all kinds of politics and power dynamics that go into that. So I don't know, maybe we could just switch to that real fast. When we're looking at what's happening specifically with COVID, what are the main things you're paying attention to that are a reflection of that? Um, there are too many to go into. I think <laughs> everything that we've experienced over the past year, year and a half now has has really been a reflection of this attitude that there is an establishment scientific consensus that is decided upon by these highly political bodies, but you are not literally not allowed to question them. And of course, that is in and of itself, as I was stressing in that podcast episode called Science Says, uh, I was stressing that itself is anti-scientific and any scientist worth his salt will tell you that. Um, Case in point, an interesting case in point that just surfaced recently, MIT, some MIT researchers came out with a paper back in January that they're presenting at a conference this month where they infiltrated COVID skeptic groups, anti-maskers and anti-vaxxers and whatever other labels they want to stick on people who are interested in actually following the science. And uh, uh, presumably their intention in infiltrating these groups in social media and, and finding out how they're using data visualization and other things so that we can disrupt these communities. Um, presumably the intention there was to uncover, oh, these, these skeptics are stupid, anti-scientific, totally illiterate, they don't know what they're talking about. But <laughs> the MIT study actually came to the exact opposite conclusion. Um, they had some remarkable things to say uh, about the anti-maskers and others, they say, uh, for example, we are told that, quote, anti-maskers often reveal themselves to be more sophisticated in their understanding of how scientific knowledge is socially constructed than their ideological adversaries. The report says, quote, their approach to the pandemic, the skeptics approach to the pandemic is grounded in a more 
scientific rigor, not less, which is a grammatically incorrect sentence, but that's MIT <laughs> for you. And uh, they also say, quote, anti-mask users in particular were predisposed to digging through the scientific literature and highlighting the uncertainty in academic publications that media organizations elide. And it goes on and on like this, and basically saying that uh, these COVID skeptics are actually champions of science. So we're going to have to deprogram them and get them talking about other things in different ways rather than simply calling them scientifically illiterate. Of course, none of this seemed to derail the fundamental underlying assertion that these people are just quacks and they're totally wrong, but they seem to be following science and actually really care about science and data. And that seems to me to underline exactly what's going on. And in fact, the, the more worrying aspect of that is not just that it's being researched by MIT researchers. As I also point out in my most recent article up on CorbettReport.com, uh, the CPSO, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario, which is the uh, licensing body for Ontario's physicians, just came out with a statement basically saying we've seen a lot, uh, a lot of doctors coming out on social media and saying things that we don't approve of, essentially. And uh, that's irresponsible. And you could have your license revoked if you say things that are against government guidelines. And so uh, there's been a declaration now that's been put out and signed by over 400 physicians from across Canada saying this is censorship. You are not only being anti-scientific in this stance, but you are actually abrogating the Nuremberg Code, specifically uh, those sections dealing with informed consent. Because if doctors cannot use evidence-based medicine to give the best advice to their patients, then they are essentially being blocked from giving informed consent to patients about the nature, for example, of the experimental not approved gene therapy that is masquerading as vaccine and everything else that's going along with this, including the lockdowns and, and all of this. Um, there are serious scientific questions at every single level, but instead of actually addressing these questions and bringing this into a debate in the in mainstream land, unfortunately, this is being completely censored off the internet. And as the old adage ha has it, when they cut out someone's tongue, it's because they are telling you they are afraid of what that person has to say. They're not saying that this person is so crazy that he could be debunked in a minute. Oh, look at this idiot. No, they're saying this guy has something that, that really could convince a lot of people to step back and take a look at this information. And that is precisely why I do what I do. Not because I think I am some font of wisdom or truth or knowledge or something, but because there are self-evident things that are being said by people in positions to know what they are talking about that are not getting this attention anywhere in the mainstream media or being reflected in the, uh, the establishment itself. Yeah, you know, you run into a lot of people. And frankly, I probably was one of those people for a long time who thought that if I just wasn't seeing it, it wasn't there without realizing that this is happening. I've had a doctor on my channel a couple of times who was on the front lines of treating COVID and MD in Michigan, who was uh, basically targeted by the FTC, not even just social media. I wasn't like posting on YouTube, it was his own website. And it was back at the beginning of all of this. And he was just thinking, well, I just figured other doctors would want to know what I was doing with my patients. So he was interviewing them and then posting the interviews on his own website, thinking that's what doctors do, especially with the new virus that nobody knows what they're doing with. Right. And and the FTC told him that he couldn't do that because it hadn't been peer reviewed at this point. And it's like, but it's a brand, you know, we're just, for him, it's it's like, he's we've never treated this before. So why, how are we supposed to have peer reviewed studies? It's just like, it's a chicken in the egg argument. And, um, and, and yet you're allowed to say ventilators are great, even though ventilators end up 
becoming a problem. But this guy can't talk about these therapeutics that cost very little money. And he never had one patient die because it hadn't been peer reviewed yet. It just never made a whole lot of sense. I, I think over this last year, it's it's really spiraled me out of out of that mindset I had when I was in mainstream news, which really wasn't much of a mindset at all. I mean, I think I was slowly starting to question things at the very beginning when I would say things like, you know, for instance, one of my my moments was I'm a brand new reporter in Knoxville and I go to a farm to do a story about electronic tags where you can track the cow, you know, if there's an E. coli outbreak or something like that. And um, and they said, so when they go off to the feedlot, we know where the disease came from. And I said, what's a feedlot? And he, I just thought I had always seen cows out on grass. And every time I'd leave a farm, they'd hand me, you know, even at a dairy once years later, fast forward years later, I went to a dairy where there was no cow on grass, but they still handed me a folder with a cow on grass. And I'm like, wait a second, what's going on here? And and so I was, I'm starting to pick up on this. But even then, I'm not thinking that the the propaganda is so thick and gets to the level of the stuff you're talking about. And I mean, now I'm just kind of sitting here like, I don't even know what to do with all this stuff. So before we get into some of the other things that you cover, why don't you first tell us what, who be, how did you become James Corbett? I mean, how, how did you, how did you become the guy you are? Because it, you're at a level, I think of, of people can disagree with you if they want, but your level of desiring to find out things is, is at, is, is in like the top minim, minimal percent. You know, there are not many people out there, I think that like to find out the stuff that you research. And a lot of people, I, I can't remember, I think it was in one of your podcasts that I was listening to, you were quoting somebody who said something like people prefer to be safe, not free. Is, is that something, is that, does that quote ring a bell to you? Uh, it sounds like a, I think it was in the permaculture podcast you did. Yeah. Anyway. So yeah. How did you get to where you are? What, why, what, what woke you up to the, to, to wanting to even get into this kind of work? Well, I suppose I, I don't really think about it very much, but I suppose my biography really does provide some sort of insight into that because I am a Canadian born and raised and, uh, I, I went to Ireland for a year to study Anglo-Irish literature, and then I went to Japan for a year to teach English, and a year turned into 17 years. So that's how that type of thing rolls. Um, but it was the furthest thing from my mind that I would ever start a website or a podcast or do anything like this. I was just an English teacher. I was just thinking what to do with the rest of my life and was trying to get into publishing or something along those lines. I had zero interest in journalism of any sort. Uh, until 2006, when I started to encounter information online that really, truly was completely out of my paradigm. And that was specifically related to 9-11. Verifiable, documentable information about 9-11 um, that I could look up for myself and see was demonstrably true, or at least was reported by mainstream media sources. Oh, Osama bin Laden was in Rawalpindi the night before 9-11. And uh, what are the ramifications of that? And oh, there is this Operation Northwoods document. I've, how come I never heard about that? All of this, these little tidbits that got me uh, essentially interested in doing research on my own, which be really because of our unique position in history, it has never been easier. There's no way that I could possibly have accomplished one-tenth of the research that I've accomplished if we were living in the old books and paper system and I'd have to go to the library and get maybe interlibrary loan books. I mean, it would be impossible to do the work that I do. So I, I'm very, very cognizant of that. I think being one of the the last generation to grow up without the internet, um, I can very much appreciate uh, how 
how transformative it is. And I'm, I'm trying to make the most of it. So I, I think it was a combination of those influences. And primarily, I don't think my curiosity and my desire to know what is really happening on a number of fronts, I don't think that that's so unique. Yes, there are people out there who simply go through life without thinking of these things, but I'm sure there are people who do have questions and would like to know more. But I think it's because I was on the margins of the margins and not even thinking about any of this kind of media production or anything like that. I have I have no interest in it, no investment in it. I wasn't trying to make a career in the media. I wasn't even trying to make a career with the website. When I started the website for the first four years, I didn't even have subscribers or anything. I wasn't thinking of making a single penny out of doing this work. It, it didn't even cross my mind that that was possible. So uh, I was never motivated by that. I didn't care about that. Uh, I was not I was not monetarily invested in, in the status quo. And I think that's one of the major psychological hurdles for so many people. If your job somehow depends on you believing something to be true, you better believe you nine times out of 10, people will simply believe it to be true or at least shut up about it. Um, I wasn't in such a position, so I didn't have to shut up. I think that that's definitely part of it. I will say, though, perhaps because of my unique background in mainstream news, and which maybe it's not so unique, but um, maybe that that gives me that perspective of people that just aren't questioning because that's why you're in that business. You, you know, when you start to get to the point that you're at, it, you really face a conundrum of whether you can stay anymore because the stuff that you talk about is just not going to, it's just not going to end up there. It, not, not the least of, of the reasons being, uh, you know, I was just reading, uh, you know, I think actually it was manufacturing consent. I was, I was reading one of the chapters specifically related to how mainstream news treats bureaucratic authoritative sources. Oh no, it was manufacturing. Uh, it wasn't manufacturing consent. Maybe it was manufacturing the news. Um, uh, and specifically talking about, how somebody like you, we in in the TV newsrooms would would need all kinds of outside verification for, but we would take the CIA at its word, right? We would take the we would take the government at its word and say it's confirmed. The CDC, if the CDC says it, it's confirmed. If the Department of Health says it, it's confirmed. But if you say it, we need a significant amount of secondary and tertiary sources in order to confirm that you're not a lunatic. We don't have the time and the resources to do that. It doesn't fit into this infrastructure. And so we just don't. And so people like you are just left to the wayside. And I think in part, it's not just the money that keeps people from questioning that. It's this, there's also sort of this chip on the shoulder morality about it. Like the the gatekeeper, we're supposed to keep people like you from talking to the public because we're the gatekeepers, even though you know way more. Like I said, people can agree or disagree, but I would love to see a debate, okay? Because I can assure you that anyone that I used to work with would never be able to debate you on on any of the topics that you <laughs> discuss. So I, I don't really know what to make of it, but one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the channel besides just picking your brain and hearing some of the stuff that you talk about is what what is the best way to, to talk to somebody if you're like if, if say I'm, I'm going back as as an evangelist to the tv newsrooms and maybe i should just give up on that um what do you say to people that are interested if they're do you just say you know what if, if you if they don't really have the spark it's not worth debating because people just keep shutting you down like how how do you how do you try to move people in that direction of just wanting to seek more information and not, especially I'm thinking about the journalists I used to work for, the people who might have that little voice in the back of their head. You know, how do you, how do you just not totally give up hope, I guess is my question. 
Well, I, I think that it relates back to what you were saying earlier, talking about the dynamic of the gatekeeping role of the mainstream media and perhaps a misunderstanding of what it is that I even do, because I myself would not say that I am a source. I am not a source that should be used by a reporter doing a report on this or that uh, topic, precisely because my journalism is all open source journalism and I do very, very, very little original to me, 100%, I, no one else has ever heard of this research. Generally, I'm looking at documents and other such things that are completely open source and are, are out there already. And I'm always directing people back to the original source documents. I always link the source documents up in my uh, show notes. And that's not just window dressing. That I think is essential to what I do. I'm trying to get people to look at these sources. So I would think a very intelligent person in mainstream media land, yes, of course, wouldn't say, hey, James Corbett said this, so it must be true. Of course not. But at the very least, I am essentially, con hopefully condensing and con congealing all of this different data and information from all these different sources and putting it together in a way that forms a narrative uh, that I hope is at least a more accurate description of reality than what we see generally in the mainstream news. And I think that is the sense in which this work has to be taken as to how to motivate people to actually take that plunge off the off the cliff edge into the conspiracy world. Ah, you know, this isn't approved information. I really wish that I could bottle and sell whatever it is that makes right. people take that plunge. But unfortunately, I can't even identify it because uh, at the end of the day, it has to be something internal. There cannot be someone coming outside with, Here, here's the three reasons why you must look at this information. Uh, you can present information all day, but if people are not interested in looking at it or taking it seriously, there are always ways to shoot it down. Right. And the easiest way, of course, is the ad hominem. And of course, that's why if you type Corbett into Google, uh, you're probably going to find the mainstream fact-checking type websites that tell you, oh, he's a conspiracy loon, don't listen to him. And that will be good enough for most people. Mm -hmm. uh, again, completely getting around the fact that I'm not really saying anything original myself. All I'm doing is pointing out various sources and saying, hey, I think this goes together like this. What do you mm -hmm. think? Um, again, how do you how do you actually even introduce that concept to people who have grown up in the mainstream media system, which is predicated on the mass media technologies of essentially the 20th century? We're, we're thinking still in the radio, newspaper, television paradigm, where, of course, these are extremely capital intensive operations that you and I can't own it and operate a TV station. No, that that's going to obviously only a few people will be able to do that. And they will have to somehow gatekeep their airwaves. I mean, they can't give everyone access to the airwaves. So we're going to have to have editors and, and below them, we'll have the journalists doing the, the legwork and all of this. So you understand how the institutional structure came about, but given the technological upgrades and, and new things that have come along in the 21st century to completely obliterate that paradigm and the fact that most people nowadays are not receiving their information from the newspaper or the, the evening news. I think we could imagine different ways of this taking place. And sometimes it is framed as the sort of the, the internet f uh, phenomenon has enabled everyone to become their own journalist. I wouldn't frame it like that, but I think at the very least, we can all become our own editors and we can decide which pieces of information, which sources we want to take from here and there and put it together for ourselves. But that is something that is expressly verboten in the new 
uh, new social media 3.0 landscape they're trying to bring into view. And I, I give as a, a case in point a fascinating Forbes article from last year called uh, oh, I don't know exactly what it was called, but I put it on my website under the title, Don't Do Your Own Research, um, because that was almost explicitly word for word yeah. the title of the, the article, where they said, um, you may think it. that you you know a thing or two, but you, you shouldn't do your own research. You should trust the scientific consensus. Uh, it was called, You Must Not Do Your Own Research When It Comes to Science, <laughs> which I understand, I think, the underlying point of that article which is surely you haven't spent decades in a lab. You do not have as much knowledge as say this accredited scientist that is saying, making this pronouncement, a, a Dr. Fauci or what have you. But of course it completely elides over the main point, which is to say, well, yes, but there are, there are other scientists who are saying different things, contradictory things at times. So uh, what do I only listen to the ones that you tell me to listen to? Mm -hmm. Because that makes you in the media, the gatekeeper of scientific reality. Huh, no thanks. I, I'm, a, I'm an independent human being with my own cognitive faculties. I think I'll use them for myself and come to my own determination of what information I take on board and what I dismiss. That is anathema to the centralization of, of communication control that, of course, for obvious reasons, the establishment that has existed for at least the last century would love to perpetuate into the 21st century. It is the old mass media paradigm that they are trying to basically place uh, on top of the internet bubble that has arisen in the past couple of decades. I hope that that will not be possible, but unfortunately, uh, enough people aren't understanding the root of the problem, this centralization that is coming into the fundamentally decentralized fabric of the internet, but trying to get us all railroaded onto a few s platforms so that we can be better controlled. I think people don't really understand the nature of that problem yet well enough to understand how to co combat it effect effectively. It reminded me, what you're saying reminds me of this Mother Jones article. They also cite you, political extremists are using YouTube to monetize their toxic ideas. And it's it's so silly to me to see uh, these outlets that are extremely well-funded or like a Chris Hayes who works for this, you know, multi-gazillion dollar organization looking at a guy like you, who's just like one guy, you know, running a website and, um, and you're monetizing, like, it, it makes it sound like you're, you're making billions of dollars off of these crazy ideas. And you're, you know, it's not like these mass corporate news stations ever say anything wrong and make gazillions of dollars off of it. Just like that Peter Hotez, um, that, you know, the vaccine scientist guy, he was in one of your videos and I've, I've talked about him in the past too. In that article, he wrote about basically getting a cyber terrorism organ, you know, group together to go after anti-vax uh, or vaccine dissent online. And he calls it the anti-vax empire as if the pharmaceutical companies are not the empire you know it is just this this switching of of um of of words where up is down and left is right and it just these things don't mean anything anymore but if you're not reading this critically and you're just somebody who's you know you're just scared i don't know maybe you're somebody who's scared about what's going on around you read these words like you're toxic ideas and you're an extremist and 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 you know it just i don't know if, if you don't if you don't say hang on a second wait I, what is really going on here like a guy on youtube is somebody i should be scared of not msnbc or or any of these these groups that have you know mass control they're the ones at the airport it's like is james corbett on the tv at the airport is he is he the brand of the snack shop? You know, I was just in the airport and CNBC is the snack shop brand. It's so weird. But like, yeah, you're the person they should be scared of. And they're the one you're the ones that they're going after. And I'm just I that to me was another one of those sort of aha moments that never really made a whole lot of sense. Because 
the, the rules that they have for each other are almost non-existent. But but then all of a sudden they become these these crusaders for truth and accuracy or something. Um, but then they're wrong about it when it comes to people like you. And so it doesn't it just doesn't really add up to me. But it definitely is the way to sort of say, a just one guy in, you know, reading documents that anyone can read is more dangerous than one of these mass corporate newsrooms, which has uh probably billions of dollars backing its work. Like you're the danger. That that to me is just bizarre that that they 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 have convinced themselves that that's the case and and just as a side note i will note that that headline at least insofar as it, it apparently applies to me who as you say i, I am featured in that article uh, yes your is, federal reserve uh, video once exactly. again caught their attention yeah. <laughs> uh, again is is factually incorrect because i never earned a single penny from youtube i didn't monetize any of my videos never received one single cent from youtube itself so anyway but that's perhaps beside the point. But the point exactly is exactly what you're saying. Of course, they're going to uh, project and take exactly the, the actual underlying problem and project it onto their opponents. So there's all this money to be made by telling these lies, right? Well, who is the one who is perpetuating the bigger lies in this case? And who is better funded for doing so? Is it the guy in his living room in Japan? Or is it the guy sitting on the million dollar set with all the cameras and lights and makeup and everything? Hmm, I wonder. Uh, yeah, again, it's 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 self-evident to those who know. And, and another example of that that just crossed the news radar just in the past couple of days is it's hilarious to me to see the mainstream media ranks now uh, gathering and and standing behind the poor beleaguered intercept from Glenn Greenwald, this crazy man who's now attacking them and questioning their yeah. journalistic credibility, and and now they're saying um, they they now have the gall to say, oh, you know, what have you done recently, Glenn? All you did was was the Snowden reporting and the Brazilian thing, yeah, I mean, whatever, a Nobel Prize here, whatever, <laughs> not a Nobel Pulitzer Prize here, what, whatever. I mean, again, I don't put stock and faith in Pulitzers and all of that, but it's just funny the way they take their prestige of, oh, you are, you've made it, you're now one of the big guns in the mainstream media, but as soon as you start attacking the mainstream media, then, oh, no, you are a heretic, and you're crazy, and we never liked you anyway, nah, 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 nah. It's just, right. it's crazy to watch. Yeah, it's, it's, it is laughable, but it's also a little bit dangerous, if not a lot dangerous, and so I don't know what to do with it sometimes, because on one hand, it's so ridiculous that I just want to laugh and be just throw my phone down and not even care. But on the other hand, that's partially why I have the channel that I have, because even though I know that they can, they'll still find a way to look at somebody like me and say, she's also an extremist. I'm sure they will. Even though I have their awards, you know, I, I won their awards. Um, I sat in their newsrooms. I was a leader in my newsroom. You know, I, they, they looked at me as somebody who was just one of them. I'm sure they'll still figure out a way to do that. Um, but I, I thought, well, maybe for the few, you know, maybe for the few that I, I'm trying to bridge the world of what they're hearing is extreme or conspiracy or whatever and normalize these conversations so that so that there's somebody that they know like a safe person you know what i mean like okay allison's if she's talking to him maybe i can pay attention you know maybe it's it's not it's not um you know grabbing the electric fence with my bare hand or something to talk to james corbett maybe i can actually just hear him out it's it, it, it and then make my own decisions afterwards um okay i i have so many questions that people wrote in that I wanted to get to because I know we don't have um, an infinite amount of time, but um, I did title this uh, the centralization of control communication. And uh, what was the third? I need to go back and look at it. Hang on. 
uh, oh, consciousness. Yes. Um, so what, what would you say? I know that's a huge topic, but I figured that that's sort of, that's how, when I was listening to your stuff, that's how I signed it, summed it up. It was like, uh, control communication and consciousness, like even just the awareness of, of everything being centralized and that you're trying to get people to decentralize in whatever ways possible. So give us the, the, the Corbett Reader's Digest version of, of what you think are, are ways, I guess, that people can do that. Um, what, what would you inspire people, I guess, to, 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 to if we're seeing the centralization and, and happy to have you explain some of the things you're looking into, how, how that centralization is happening, but also thoughts on, on people that are watching that, that want to, with their actual lives, make a difference, what should they do? All right. Well, I think the ground level is an understanding of the reality that we live in, which is that there is an oligarchical ruling class in our society, which right there, that's, I think, the dividing line that most people won't want to step over. That sounds like conspiracy. Uh, you can look at any period in history and identify the oligarchical rulers of any given society. But our society is this virtuous, wonderful democracy and everything functions exactly as stated. And the president is really the one controlling everything and et cetera, et cetera. Um, for anyone who is willing to step past that and recognize that there are at least uh, agglomerations of power in various establishment bodies and uh, I'm not one of these people who believes in the monolithic conspiracy. It all goes back to one person at the top. I think there are different power groupings that often overlap. And uh, uh, precisely on those points where the agenda overlap, we, we tend to see action. And I think the formation of the biosecurity state, or what I've been calling the biosecurity state, in line with uh, Italian philosopher Giorgio Agamben, who I think very accurately and very succinctly characterized that last year as it was coming together. He called it the biosecurity state, essentially what we are seeing right now, where you are not you're not allowed to be healthy. You don't have access to healthcare. No, now you are obliged to have health care mandated upon you, precisely whatever the governing body um, decides to, to appoint to you. That is biosecurity. That's the biosecurity state. But I should probably call it the biofascist state because that gets a little bit closer to the heart of the problem. Again, you can identify there are many different groupings here that all have a finger in this pie, the most obvious of which is, of course, the big pharma companies that are making billions upon billions of dollars. But they signed all these agreements to give away their vaccines and to, to be nice and play nice during the pandemic, et cetera, et cetera, in these secret documents that we only get characterizations of from Financial Times reports and others that, oh, by the way, such things as, you know, I believe it was Pfizer has in their uh, contract with Brazil, a they get to declare when the pandemic is over so that they can start making profits on it and all of this sort of stuff. I mean, crazy stuff that obviously, there are obvious conflicts of interest going on. But once you recognize that sort of overarching theme, and I think that would be the overarching theme of many of the different things that I cover, that there are oligarchical ruling elite that we're not allowed to even talk about, not even acknowledge the existence of, once you do cross over that line and start acknowledging it, then it becomes, I think, on one, at least in one sense, it becomes very simple um, what it is that what our task is to ultimately undo the problems that have been done um, by these types of ruling oligarchies, which is you see in every instance, it is about centralization of power, centralization of control in fewer and fewer hands. And for obvious reasons, that has been the goal of every would-be ruler throughout history is to consolidate control in as few hands as possible. And that can never really come down to one person. It's always going to be an oligarchical group um, that they can trust because they're in the same bodies and groups and what have you. And it's like the mafia. 
Uh, ultimately, there are different, obviously there are different mobs and they will war with each other over territory, but if anyone threatens the, the mafia itself, they will gang together to fight that threat. And I think that's the way we have to understand this. But that, un unfortunately, our understanding of how to fight back against something like that does come from comic books and movies and other cultural programming that we've received since the time we were born, essentially, that uh, it puts it in that frame that we have to fight against and we're going to, I don't know, form the, the untouchables and go after the mob with our Tommy guns or something. Of course, that is not how reality operates. And I think the base level of all of this that they probably don't want you to think too deeply about is that it is ultimately our power, our money, our time, our attention, our energy that creates this system, all everything that's going into it, everyone plays their little part by, at the very least, buying their, their gas from one of the, the major gas companies and f getting their food down at the fast food and buying everything from Amazon and, of course, supporting all of the various things or directly working in the various industries that feed into this system. So the thing that they don't want you to think about too deeply is our power actually still resides with us in the choices that we make of what we choose to do uh, with our lives and what we choose to support with our time, attention, energy, and money. And so really, I think the, the ultimate solution to all of this comes down to finding ways to decentralize that power and control, to get off of these grids of, uh, of organization and control. And we can look at that in specific examples. For example, the problem of YouTube, again, millions, billions of people ultimately congregating on this one platform that is controlled by this one company that, oh, by the way, has these extremely shady roots with uh, with literal documented ties to uh, the US intelligence apparatus. Um, I've gone through that, for example, in a, a report that I did on the secrets of Silicon Valley a couple of years ago that people might want to check out. But why are we all congregating and putting all of our eggs in this basket? And oh no, they, they're censoring people. I never would have thought this would have happened. Of course, this is absolutely guaranteed the way that this was going to take place. So we shouldn't be surprised about it, but there are specific things that people can do. The first, as you have already started to do, is post your work to other platforms and let people know, hey, it's out there too, please take a look at it. Let's go to those other platforms. And that puts uh, at least part of the responsibility in the court of everyone who's listening to this conversation. If you are sitting there on YouTube and only getting your information from YouTube, why is that? How are you contributing to this censorship by essentially playing into it and allowing it to take place because you are not making the moves, the very simple moves to get onto other platforms. Once you start to move to other platforms for information dissemination, you have to then start to understand, okay, is this also a similarly structured centralized organization in which one single central body can control and ultimately censor what goes on there? And if so, then it will be at some point, if it gets big enough and popular enough, then we will see a replication of exactly what took place with YouTube. So maybe that's not ultimately the way to do it. So is are there technologies that we can use to actually decentralize and use the internet in a decentralized way for more peer-to-peer -peer style communications? And lo and behold, yes, yes, there is. There are all sorts of things, web torrent technologies, IPFS, uh, there's PeerTube and other things like this that are structurally uh, at, at the at the base level, 
designed to be decentralized and ultimately uncensorable. And that I think is the way that we start to do this. First, just taking baby steps and then taking larger and larger steps. And yes, it will involve learning curve and perhaps investing our time and energy in going to a new place and learning how it works and getting motivated to get other people there, et cetera. But if, if we won't even take those basic steps, then how are we going to confront the, the much larger issues that are facing us, the, the central bank digital currencies that are coming into view, the, the biosecurity state with the vaccine passports that will undoubtedly, once they get instituted, be used for social credit compliance and all sorts of things along those lines. Uh, and ultimately, as I've been talking about in my recent work, the biodigital convergence that is being openly talked about by Government of Canada think tanks about how we are going to be technologically upgraded to become these quasi-cyborg-like entities that will be essentially, uh, the, the concept of vitalism will be consigned to the dustbin of history. What's vitalism again? Oh, the concept that there's something more to life than simply the agglomeration of matter that can, that we, we consist of. Uh, that will that will be seen as some sort of ancient ideology. No, no, digital, biological, biodigital, it's all the same. And we'll all just be that. They're literally talking about the end of human life as we know it in documents that are openly available on the Government of Canada website. And you still, you can hardly get people to even look at it. It's it, it really is insane, but that's what we have to start thinking about. And I say, we take these tiny little steps of, for example, just getting off of YouTube, and then we'll see if we can take the larger steps of actually setting up a decentralized economy. Okay, I'm glad you brought up the extinction stuff because one of the questions that came out on my locals platform, I'm gonna get a couple of those questions, is ask him to explain, this is from Seth Underwood, ask him to explain the human extinction event and if he thinks we are actually capable of building a super AI that can outthink us. <laughs> yes, good question. All right, so I will, first of all, since we, we don't have tons of time, I will direct people to my recent work on this, especially yeah. an article that I wrote recently on exploring biodigital convergence, which also happens to be the title of this document I'm referring to from a government of Canada think tank called Policy Horizons Canada, which just happens to be chaired by the former head of strategic visionary, whatever future Gugagri uh, for the World Economic Forum, which should not be surprising to anyone who's keeping uh, uh, keeping abreast of these, uh, these very oligarchical ruling uh, bodies that I'm talking about. The World Economic Forum obviously having its fingerprints on so much of what we've seen in the past year, including of course the Great Reset. Um, so exploring biodigital convergence, I will, I will simply exhort anyone who hasn't read it yet to just go and at least skim through the document, read the forward, read the introduction, read the creepy, creepy vision of the future. They write this, this sort of a day in the life of someone however many years from now uh, in this biodigital world where they wake up and they, they check their electronic bug net, these bugs that fly around their apartment and check for bug inv invaders from foreign entities, as well as monitor the environment. And they get their special protein pill from their, their uh, sensors that are constantly monitoring their blood sugar levels and everything. And just every aspect of this person's existence is essentially fused with this the surveillance grid that is monitoring everything, not only everything they're doing, but literally what their body is producing, etc. And this is not as sci-fi as it seems. We've already seen, for example, DARPA working with a company called Perfusa to come up with these hydrogels, which will be implanted under the skin that will send out signals that could be read from a distance uh, that will 
for example, theoretically could tell you, oh, this person is infected with COVID. Oh, great. What a wonderful tool. I'm sure it will only be used for benevolent purposes, <laughs> um, says the naive um, and willfully ignorant. Um, so uh, it's hard. It's hard to really encompass this. Again, I would suggest people really look at that document and read mm -hmm. the forward where they literally say that we are looking at the potential end of what we consider to be human. The human identity itself will be transformed as we move into this biodigital world where our, bi as Klaus Schwab, head of the World Economic Forum, has said on multiple occasions, our biological, physical, and digital identities will be merged. And they mean that quite literally. You can watch Klaus Schwab in an interview from 2016 on a French television program saying that we will have brain chips within the next decade and they will... Uh, ultimately, they'll go from wearables and hearables, things that you are wearing on your body, to ultimately being implanted under your skin or in your brain. And he says he says this kind of stuff. If I say it again, crazy conspiracy theory. But Klaus Schwab said it. Of course. Well, that's just that's is inevitable. It's the way things are going. That's I what I mean. Elon when Musk I start say that. Yeah, sorry, I was just going to say real fast. I heard Elon Musk say that on Joe Rogan. Like it was totally normal. <laughs> so. Yes. Yeah. And of course, Elon Musk frames it in the sense that. We need to do this so that ultimately the AI supercomputers that will rule the world will spare us because they'll see us as like cute pets or something. But if we're just biological, they'll try to get rid of us. Um, again, crazy, crazy stuff like that. Um, as to the other part of your, your listener's question there about the AI supercomputers knowing everything, um, I don't... Uh, I, I'm, I guess I would say I'm agnostic on that question at this point. Um, but I note that AI, artificial intelligence, and that very concept is so derailing of actual conversation that it's actually um, perhaps uh, it does a disservice to bring it up because people start having these abstract philosophical questions about whether a toaster has a soul and, and this kind of thing, rather than looking at what the actual technology can actually do right now, let alone what it will do in the future. I don't care if the computer is actually thinking like we think about thinking, it is still performing calculations and putting output out there for its programmers um, that is orders of magnitude faster and more efficient than any human could possibly do it. And that is, of course, accelerating. The, the, the pace of technological advancement is accelerating, as has been observed. I don't care if we ever see, uh, get there at the singularity, as defined by Ray Kurzweil and the other futurists, where literally the computers become smarter than humans and take over the world. But at any rate, it is becoming so advanced. This technology is becoming more and more advanced all the time. And the way that it is being envisioned to be used to monitor everything you are saying, doing, and ultimately thinking because yes, they are starting to develop the technology for decoding human thoughts with these machines and being able to tell what you are looking at or what you are thinking about. That is already being developed. Um, once we start to, to really delve into that, that universe, all bets are off the table. Again, what kind of autonomy do we have if we ultimately start accepting these upgrades and start becoming something other than human? I need something stronger than tea right now. Um, I remember, you know, years ago, my grandma, she used to think when we were, I'd call her on my cell phone and there, maybe I'd lose her for a second or there'd be some background noise. She'd think it was the operator listening in on our call. And, you know, grandma, those days are over. <laughs> now it's like, no, grandma, they're actually back. Um, I'm scared that I have a child. I'll be honest with you. It's it, it, it this is very disconcerting. All of this. Um, okay. Next question. I don't know what this means. Nanothermite flakes. 
Does that mean anything to you? Bob Whittlefish asks. I would assume that's a reference to WTC7, the World Trade Center Building 7, the third building to fall on 9-11, and or the Twin Towers, actually. Uh, And in the dust uh, from Ground Zero, there there were... chips that were discovered, little um, flakes that were analyzed and found to have nanothermitic materials, which is a type of uh, flammable uh, substance that was theorized could have been part of what actually brought the towers down. Um, Again, there's a lot of research behind that and a lot of back and forth between different researchers. I don't necessarily get into the the fireworks of the physically what happened on 9-11, so much as I'm interested in the bigger story of who, who was doing what and who was masterminding what and who was in touch with what, that, that's kind of where I'm interested in. But I think that's specifically what that question or statement is referring to. Yes. That pro- okay. Uh, Paul Pace, when I first learned of James Corbett uh, around the first Ron Paul campaign, discussing almost exclusively 9-11, the Federal Reserve, uh, this wasn't enough to gain my interest, so I didn't tune in again until 2020. In the intervening decade, I subscribe primarily to the Austrian economics and libertarian outlets. However, I do not recall any of them ever mentioning World Economic Forum, Technocrats, Event 201, or Agenda 21. Since 2020, it seems that many, if not all of these people in the crowd are talking about these things. Well, better late than never, I'm wondering his thoughts on why they ignored this. And if anyone has admitted that they maybe had a blind spot, I know I sure did. And I think it is a very important lesson. Yes. Uh, I don't know about any admissions or anything, um, but I think this goes back to what we were talking about earlier with people basically um, going along to get along. I, I think people who are slightly on the margins of mainstream debate w- will desperately do anything to signal to the mainstream that, no, I'm not that kind of crazy person. So I think the people who are actually most likely to avoid anything that sniffs of conspiracy theory would be the people who, for example, in the Austrian School of Economics, slightly outside of the mainstream, but we're not that far out of the mainstream. No, no, no. We don't talk about the fundamental technological underlay to systems of control or things like that. No, 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 no. Everything is is above board and every everyone's intentions is exactly as stated and organizations like the World Economic Forum are just, you know, footnotes in our data. So I think that the uh, the mainstream Austro-libertarian movement, especially in the United States, has a three by five card of allowable opinion that they will not stray far from and uh, will do anything to avoid the conspiracy theorist label. Hopefully that stigma has been broken in the past year, as I have seen it broken for many, many, many people, which might get back to the heart of your question. How do we convince people to take a look at this information? I think if the events of the past year have not convinced you to at least take a look at the debate that is happening right now and the voices that are being censored and what they are saying, I I really don't know what will at this point. Yeah, a journalist friend of mine just told me we'd have to agree to disagree when I told her this is one of the greatest propaganda campaigns since 9-11 and the Patriot Act, you know, and, and just pushing... Uh, the the security protocol. I, I at least I haven't seen anything in my lifetime since post 9/11 Patriot Act era uh, for government control, surveillance, and and whatnot un- until now. And she was just like, "Eh, we'll have to agree to disagree on that one." You're like, "Okay," but that's just the easy way to end the conversation, and then just say we're not even going to look into it. And you're right. That's the she 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 thinks in her mind when they have two different people from the department of health in their local town in Hawaii, in, uh, Ohio, that, um, that's, 
that's a variety of, of, of ideas. <laughs> you know, that to them is a variety of ideas that that's, um, that's seeking all the sides. So, like I said, that's why, you know, it, it, this is why I have people like you on, cause I'm, I'm interested in, in the people, in, in what real variety of conversation <laughs> looks like. Okay. One other question. What about the use of smart systems like Amazon, Alexa, that kind of stuff? Are you just no, no on that? We don't have them in our house. Um, or even I, I have a doctor friend actually who says that, you shouldn't even have like the light switches that you Bluetooth and stuff because that can mess with your, um, you know, your, your, I guess, neurology of, of the way that you've had, he's had patients who've had strokes because of that kind of stuff. So, um, but, but I think this person's asking specifically from a surveillance perspective, what do you think about that stuff? Yes. Uh, not only does that type of technology condition us for the future total surveillance state that is actually far beyond the Orwellian 1984 with the telescreens. I mean, it literally measuring all sorts of things that Orwell could not have even dreamed of. Not only is it conditioning us to accept that as it comes, and in fact, even spend, spend our own money in order to purchase it, but even right now, even just as primitive as this technology is, it is a surveillance tool that is being used against you. In fact, Alexa records of uh, recordings of conversations have been subpoenaed in murder trials and other such things. Oh, isn't it great? They can access this data of the conversation that was happening in your home in order to solve a murder. I wonder if they could access it for any other possible reason. Uh, oh, oh, you mean Alexa is always listening? Wait, I have to say the special watchword, Alexa, order me a dollhouse. I hope everyone who has an Alexa just got a dollhouse delivered in the mail. Um, uh, obviously, it is always listening. The wake word is only used to alert it that it now has to respond, but it is always listening. And they say they scrub every few seconds. But actually, this goes back to, again, documentable on the record. You don't have to take my word for it. Take Petraeus, David Petraeus, the former director of the CIA in 2012, was going around the uh, the conference circuit and saying that in the future, in the near future, dishwashers and everything else, but dishwashers made the literal headline at wired.com, will be used to spy on you. We will spy on you through your smart appliances. So this technology is now being uh, made absolutely quotidian. Everyone has it, right? It's just something you invite into your home without, I think, many people really contemplating the, uh, the, the ramifications of it. And in fact, it even goes deeper than that, um, because I also see that type of technology as the thin edge of the wedge of uh, the, the introduction of hearable and wearable technology, which as Klaus Schwab was saying was the next the step before we start implanting it into people's skin. But it's also important because uh, one of the reasons, one of the things that struck me uh, about the Chris Hayes incident that I didn't get at the time that it was happening, but I understand better now is, oh, of course, that many people are not watching YouTube on their computer. They're not sitting there at a computer and typing in search terms and looking and scrolling through and refining results and finding the thing that they want. Many people these days are in a smart TV. They type in the you know keyword that they want and there's a few options there and they go with one of the first options there. That's why it's so important for them to tailor those first few options and make sure that they're the mainstream acceptable ones. One corollary of that is the Alexas and other things. When you search for something through Alexa, Alexa, tell me about 9-11, whatever it is, it's not going to give you some vast, you know, 3,000 pages of search results that you can scroll through and refine your results. No, you get to hear essentially one version of things that will come from one approved source of Wikipedia or what have you. And that is, again, part of the indoctrination towards uh, taking the physical 
machines that we have sitting on our desktop that we can use productively to do things like create a podcast that gets seen and heard by millions of people around the world, they don't want that technology to be so readily available. They would love it if we, all we have is essentially surveillance devices that also function as vending machines. You can order up this or you can order up that, but you can't use it productively to create or to refine your search results or to do anything that would actually put power and control back in your hands. So it's a, it's a slippery slope towards that as well. Well, there are a lot of a lot more questions coming in, but I'm going to leave it to you, James. Is there anything that we did not discuss that you feel? I mean, <laughs> I'm sure there's like a million things you could just go on and on. And um, I, I hope people um, understand that the amount of, I can't, I'm sure listening to you right now, people's brain, at least mine is, I just, I can't imagine the amount of reading and material that you've amassed over the years. Do you have it in, in your office? Is it all digital? How do you keep it safe? Like your links? I mean, how does somebody like you organize all of your, of your thoughts? And then I do have a link to your website in the description of the video, so we can go check you out. I'm sure a lot of people already, you know, been there many times, know who you are. Um, but besides your site, in addition to, you know, I think that would probably be a great place to end it. How does somebody like you um, manage this kind of material? What are what's the first baby step? Are there any other sources you think people should go to? Um, just just kind of leave it there, unless there's something else you'd like to talk about that I didn't ask you about. There's a million things to talk about, and each one of them we could talk in so much depth. We could have one hour conversations right. about each one of those topics. So let's let's leave it there for now. But yes, on the question of management and organization and how to collect and collate this information, I, I probably am not as organized in in some sort of objective sense. If you walked in and said, "Oh, here is here is my organization system, and here is my file drawer with all the cards or anything digitally or otherwise," but uh, uh, one. One very, very, very simple thing that I always encourage people to do, and I hope that they this I've drummed it into my audience enough that they actually do this, is to save information when you come across it. If you think it is important, if it is enough to make you go, hmm, that's interesting, save it and come back to it later if you need to. And the way that I do that, for example, if I'm reading an article and it's worth saving and keeping and noting, I will uh, save it to, to my hard drive and I will. I have just a basic directory, and I have some basic categories of world geopolitics and science and technology and that kind of thing. And I, I organize it that way. And even then, like, so if I, for example, I want to know what what do I know about uh, Austria, and I can go into my Austria folder and find all the things that I've saved over the years on that. That's one way of doing it. But I find even just the process of doing that generally helps me to remember that I know something about that subject. And I can usually, from that, I can I can either find it again in my archives or look it up again. And one example of that that came up very recently, I just did a report on the markets or are rigged, looking at the, uh, the rigging essentially of the stock market and other things from its very inception. And I, I remembered specifically one particular image from 2008, as it turns out, I remember seeing this image of uh, one of the daily sort of the, the readout of, I think it was the S&P 500, you know, doing its usual gyrations up and down. And then there's this exact straight line at the exact moment that the president's working group on financial matters, the plunge protection team, so-called, stepped into the markets and just took the markets in an exact straight line, and then they start gyrating again. And I remember seeing that image, but literally I'm sitting here in 2021 remembering 
I saw that 13 years ago. And uh, luckily I remembered enough of it to be able to search and find it again and put that image on screen at that particular point of the documentary. So that's how I operate. I, uh, maybe my brain is just weirdly wired to be able to do that. Um, hopefully other people have more efficient systems of organization, but it works for me. But yes, I, I, I can't stress it enough that when you see something like um, my big oil documentary, how and why big oil conquered the world, that is essentially a culmination of a decade of research. And there are little bits and pieces that I gather from here and there and here and there and here and there until it starts to, I start to be able to put the pieces together in my in my head. And then, uh, well, then now I have to sit down and collect and organize that information and put it out and I'll turn to sources. I turn to print sources, I turn to digital sources. Uh, I'm open to, to anything, but the closer to primary source, the better. I, I want to approach this like an historian someone who can actually point and say, no, I got this from here. I'm not making this up. Don't listen to me. I've got it from this point, which is why I always include the show notes. And in the case of my big documentary work, complete transcripts of everything I say with links back to the exact point at which I cite a certain source. So hopefully it's a tool for researchers out there, would-be researchers who want to start digging in. And I think once you've seen enough of my reports, you'll get a sense of how I do this and where, what kind of sources I use and how I put them together. I think it should be apparent once you see it in, in operation. I did think of, of one question I meant to ask you that I, I'm, I'm going to clip actually from the YouTube version and put on the other platforms as an incentive to decentralize from YouTube. Um, so if you got to this point, this is going to be clipped, but this is the question. And actually, before I ask you that, do you have any thoughts real fast on Matt's question? James, what is the point of all the mass immigration we've seen over the last few years? Uh, yes, uh, there was a there was a professor who wrote a book on weapons of mass migration a few years ago, which I haven't read uh, myself, but I have read about it quite a bit in discussions about it, um, talking about the way that um, migration can be used as a tool for transforming political um, discourse within a, a, any given populace, etc. Um, so there is there I think there is that aspect to it. Um, it's one of course of the great ironies that it was um, the the destruction of Syria that was enabled and propagated by so much propaganda over the past decade, as well as the destabilization in Libya and Iraq and Afghanistan and all the other places that have been subject to the war of terror that led to these massive waves of migration that have uh, obviously caused a lot of uh, political turmoil in places throughout Europe, for example. So there, I think there is an aspect to that. And uh, there, there, uh, to what extent this is all part of a larger agenda, et cetera. I haven't exactly done the the documentary on that, so I can't really say, but I think there are there are aspects of that that are often overlooked, um, despite the fact that they're pretty obviously stated. Um, uh, even in American political life, um, mainstream Democrats and everyone will, will point to the fact that, well, Republicans' days are numbered. It's a demographic thing. I mean, look, we're, we're outnumbering you and we're, we're only growing our population. Um, as evidenced by the fact that, of course, a lot of uh, immigration tends to vote Democrat and things like this. It's openly acknowledged, but one of the things that you're not allowed to talk about. So I think there is an aspect of that to what's going on right now. Um, but I always am at pains to stress that we essentially, everyone who's listening to this conversation, unless a Klaus Schwab or one of his cronies happens to be listening in, but everyone who's really a part of your audience, it, we're all in the same boat and we are all victims of this I won't say victims, because again, that puts the emphasis in the wrong place. We are all subject to this system that we are helping to perpetuate, that is oppressing us. And we are pitted against each other in so many different ways, 
when I think it would be in our best interest to cooperate and work together to solve these problems rather than relying on the establishment that has created the problems in the first place to come along with their preordained solutions, which, oh, by the way, always tend to lead towards more centralization of power. So that's that's the emphasis I always put on it. Whatever differences may exist between us, we have, I mean, it's not even a question of should we, we have to learn to get over differences and to, to work together on key issues because otherwise we are doomed as a species. Okay, my final question again, which is going to be clipped. The answer is going to be clipped and put on my other platform. So check out the links in the description if you wanna see this, James. Um, and again, James Corbett, the Corbett Report, link in the description as well. What is the cost of going down this path? What, and maybe also what's the benefit? If you do a cost-benefit analysis, you're somebody who's sitting at home, you know what, you're watching your Netflix series, you're starting to think maybe, maybe James Corbett's making some good points, but what could I lose? Or what could I gain if I started going down this path? I'm curious for you, if you could share any of what personal or professional costs you've faced. Um, did you lose friends? Do your family members think you're nuts? Um, did you have any professional expenses? And what it, what has have been the benefits of, of doing the work that you've done? Um, just as people are kind of sitting back and saying, there obviously has to be something you can't take the path you've been on at least i i can't imagine without having to give up some things and i'm sure you gain some things but but what what is what what are the costs and the benefits of, of the path that you've been on over the last say 15 20 years it's a good question and i will start by addressing what i think a lot of people are immediately interested in um which are again unfortunately coming from our cultural programming um the the sort of james bond-esque image of this type of, oh, you're talking about these secret things. I'm sure the CIA is all over you or whatever. You're always being followed by the men in black or something like that. I can definitively say I've never at least been overtly approached by any sort of intelligence or shadowy people or whatever. I mean, perhaps to some extent, even just in the most basic sense, just being in Japan, it probably does insulate me to some extent from uh, things that I'm sure would happen if I was in the US or Canada or somewhere. Um, but Having said that, yes, I mean, costs and benefits, of course, there are always costs and benefits. And it depends, it ultimately depends on your starting point. Again, I was, I suppose, lucky enough to start encountering this at a relatively young age and at a point where I hadn't really made my career yet and, and set myself in stone or become ensconced in some industry where I couldn't speak out. For people in that situation, yes, you very well possibly could be looking at the end of your job or even your career if you start saying the wrong things or believing the wrong things. So I understand there are significant impediments to getting started into this. If you're lucky enough to be on the young side and not, not already embedded in, in an industry or something, consider yourself lucky. For those who are, it yeah, it very well could be the end of your, your job or your career. It could be the end of friendships or things that you've held dear. But I think we've all seen over the course of the past year especially, let alone the last five years there in the United States, that it's getting increasingly difficult to have normal civil conversations about anything non-political. And more and more people's friendship is predicated on them believing the exact same things at all times. And that is, again, much to our detriment because it tends to divide the population so it can be better conquered. Um, but yes, uh, if you start speaking out about these things, you very well could lo lose friends and loose status in society, etc. It is, I'm not going to say that this is a guaranteed path to happiness, um, depending how you define happiness. 
Now, having said that, are there benefits? There certainly are. And I think the base level of understanding that would be to say that over the past year, where a lot of people have been losing their jobs or been completely disrupted in their the way that they've, they're, they're operating, et cetera, or facing that, oh, should I speak out or should I just go along to get along? I, I haven't had to experience any of that because I have gained autonomy through doing this work and building it up in my own way, on my own platform, with my own uh, resources and uh, getting people to support me directly so that I can actually do this work. That is obviously a privileged position that I do not take lightly. I, I very, very much appreciate it. But because I have built this up over the past 14 years, I'm now in a position where these massive disruptive events don't necessarily affect me and my family as much as other people's families. Of course, I think that's that's the problem because our society is structured in a way that we are so dependent on these various systems of control. So to the extent that it can, at the very least, set you on the path towards autonomy, that I think is to the good. But at a more fundamental level, I, I, again, I can't say this will bring you fame, fortune, or happiness, or any combination of anything like that. But at the very least, at the very least, I hope I am totally, utterly quackers out to lunch, completely fruit, fruit loop, totally 100% wrong about everything I'm saying, but I don't believe so. I believe, unfortunately, that the, the overall thrust of what I'm talking about is true and is coming true. And in the face of this incredible, again, end of the human species type situation that we are facing right now, in the face of that, if I look back on my life and say, well, I kind of had some problems with it and I, I knew something was wrong, but I didn't speak out. I didn't do anything. And I just sat there and I just went along to get along. I wouldn't be able to live with myself. I don't know about other people, but I just could not look myself in the mirror or say to my son, let alone my grandchildren yet to be born. Yeah, I just, I knew there was something wrong, but I, I just kind of left it for you guys to sort out. No, not me. And uh, anyone who can look themselves in the mirror and do that, I no. I guess that's up to you and your conscience. But uh, for me, that's the, the biggest benefit of all of this is that I at least get to know I did what I could. And it'll be a mystery to see whether they'll be able to sort it out better or or less successfully with the brain chip. I don't know. I don't know if it's going to make it <laughs> easier or harder. Um, okay, James Corbett, CorbettReport.com, link in the description, along with the links for everything else. But you know what? They don't need those links because if they're watching this part of the video, they're watching on another platform because <laughs> you exactly. are not watching this on YouTube after this video is clipped. Okay, thanks again. I really appreciate it. And hopefully I'll have you back on another time. We can get into all other kinds of, of, of stuff because I know we've only even... Uh, broach the surface of it, but I, I really do appreciate your, I know you're such a busy guy and, um, and to, to take the time for lots of people. Cause I've, I've been able to find you on lots of different podcasts of just people with different kinds of followings. And it, it's, it's obviously reflective of the fact that you're not like, I'm James Corbett, you know, I'm, <laughs> you know, because you have a pretty big following and a lot of people who really appreciate what you do. And, and it's, you seem like a really humble guy who's willing to just get the message out wherever you can. So I do appreciate you. Thanks again. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. And I hope your audience appreciates what you're doing because it, again, uh, I'm talking about the costs of doing this type of work. I, I'm sure you have experienced them more acutely than I did when I started doing this work. So I very much appreciate it. Thank you for opening up this conversation. Absolutely. Okay, everybody take care of yourselves and I will see you next time.